back and back. Welcome to Decision, Decision Space, Space, the only podcast to take place right here between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan Hansen. And I'm Jake Friedman. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. This week on Decision Space, we're going to be talking about five decision spaces that Jake and I are excited to explore in the future. Those might be games that are new to us. Uh, most likely, they're going to be games that are new to us based on this uh, this actual prompt. But they might be new games to the world, or they might be games that have been out for a very long time. Uh, we're not going to put that restraint on it, but these are basically five decision spaces we've heard of and are interested in. But before we get into things, uh, next week for all of our plea pre-planners out there. We're going to be covering classic Tom Lehman simultaneous action game Race for the Galaxy. And then the week after that, we're going to be discussing the two-player duel game. I think it's the highest rated two-player game on Board Game Geek. I might be wrong about that. I should have checked before I said that. Uh, but it's Seven Wonders, and it's ranked very highly on Board Game Geek. And Seven Wonders Duel. Yeah, Seven we Wonders Duel. We should be very, very clear. <laughs> Thank you, Jake. Seven Wonders Duel. Yeah, everyone's going to be like, no, Brendan, it plays seven players. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing this week, Jake? I am doing good. Just got back on a flight from New Orleans, so a little bit tired. But I'm going to try to bring my usual enthusiasm for the topic uh, and just be a huge ball of energy. Amazing. And I'll have energy in spades for the both of us. Well, if you don't have as much energy today, I know most of it's gone to kicking all of our butts in the Discord at Seven Wonder, at Race for the Galaxy these last few weeks as well. So I am not trying to talk about that game right now because we need to get to the topic at hand, uh, but I might be a little bit salty. Okay. Let's get to it. <laughs> Jake, I figured for this discussion, we could just take turns going back and forth about games, sort of giving a brief overview of what the game is and then maybe talking about why we're attracted to the decision space oh i also was wondering maybe before we jump into it completely what if we call these exploration report episodes because they're not really what we talk about episodes they're more like what do we want to be exploring or maybe if we do more of these what games did we explore that we're not going to do a full feature on the show for yeah maybe like i don't know report to me indicates like we're have studied we've done it all going back i think maybe this is like a mission planning or i don't know operation plan i like mission planning <laughs> a mission plan great well the <laughs> first decision space that i'm gonna ch chart a course to uh is actually a 2019 game published by oink games do you want to venture a guess at what this could be jake or do you just want me to get into it could it be mask men uh, no, <laughs> it's actually a game that's getting broader release this year. So I tricked you. And that game is Scout. This is a game by Kai yes. Kajino. Uh, so this is a game you're familiar with, Jake? I should have guessed. Yeah, no, I, I don't. I haven't played it myself, but I've heard it getting some buzz in. I, I think on the Board Game Barrage podcast specifically, Kellen, the Red Tank, is, is a big fan of Scout. Yeah, and of Wink Games generally. So this is actually, I heard of this game from Kellen. And Scout has a few things that I'm really interested in. Um, first and foremost, it's a game that has only 45 cards, which is really cool. That's a really slim card game. Uh, I know most people are like, but Brendan, most card games historically have 52 cards. Yes, but still, it's a slim card game. Um, and it uses these cards in really interesting ways in that every card in the game is indexed. So in the top left version of the card, it is one value. And in the bottom right version of the card, it's a different value. So it's orientation in your hand, 
matters. If it's facing up, right, it might be a nine or down, it might be a one. Um, and in those 45 cards, there's every combination of two values of the numbers between one and 10 of those values. Um, so basically all the cards exist in the set. And then in addition to that mechanic, um, once a card is added to your hand, it's locked in the orientation that it's in. Um, so if you add the card that is a nine or a one to your hand, as a nine, it stays a nine until it leaves your hand, or it stays a one until it leaves your hand if you play it that way. And then also its position is in your hand is locked. Um, so over the course of the game, this is a ladder climbing game. You're trying to basically build these runs of cards uh, or car or pairs of cards that are higher than whatever is on the table. You have these two core actions. Um, you can either play where you take uh, two, one or more uh, adjacent cards, Basically, you if you could only play one card, if you're the first person to go, you can do that. Um, but one or more adjacent cards that are either the same value or have values in consecutive order. So if you could play a seven and eight or maybe a seven, eight and nine, and you just have to beat whatever's on the table. Uh, and basically, you're trying to shed cards from your hand. Um, or if you can't play, you can scout and you take one card from what's already down on the table and then you add it to your hand in whatever orientation you want. Um, and once per round, you get to play and scout at the same time. So this is a pretty light card game uh, that just, it seems like a, a really neat decision space to me of trying to figure out when you want to play and scout, use that as your once per round action uh, to basically take a double turn. Jake and I have been playing a lot of games lately with double turns, and I think it's an interesting mechanic that works better in some games than others. I really like hand management, and I think the positional nature of keeping cards in a specific place in your hand is something that can create a really interesting decision space. I think there's also some natural tension there uh, because some of the fun of playing card games can be having a hand of cards and like playing with them and fiddling with them and shuffling with them. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out for me. I've only ever experienced that in one game, uh, which is Luxor by Queen Games. And that's mm. like you're trying to explore, uh, I guess, a like a burial chamber it's sort of egyptian themed and the way that one works is you can only play cards from the right or left of your hand so it has this really funny tension where it's like i need to move four spaces but the four is in the middle of my hand so like trying to like okay i guess i'll just play all the cards from the right to like move it over one way or another is is really kind of a fun dynamic so i definitely think there there could be a lot of fun there but uh, yeah, it'll be, it'll be, I think I'll have to like play and experience that particularly in person to know if that's something I'll really enjoy or something that would just kind of annoy me and make me feel like, like restricted in some way at the table too much. Yeah. I think that's really interesting that you brought up Luxor being able to play from the left or right. It's not a game that I've played, but I have played Bonanza where cards are sort of coming into your hand on the left and leaving on the right. And there's so many interesting levers that these sort of locked hands games can play with of where do cards come in, how do cards leave, um, in Scout, how do you want the card to exist in your hand, right? It exists in this possibility space of it is this or that until it enters your hand and then it's locked forever. I think that's really cool. And I'd love to see more games sort of play with that. Or I guess first I should play Scout and see how much I enjoy the mechanic uh, of this card that exists in multiple possibilities until it is added to your hand and then it becomes one card until you play it again and it becomes two. I think that's really neat that that value can mean something really differently to you and to your opponents when you play it to the table. Um, it makes me think of like tile games and set collection also, which in some ways this isn't a set collection game. It's a hand shedding game, but 
it just seems like cool stuff. And I will say, this is a game that I ordered recently. Very cool. So this uh, mission has been planned. It's prepped for launch. Yes. We'll see, <laughs> we'll see if it gets there. Uh, but yeah, we'll be excited to hear uh, what you think of it when you get the chance to play it. Is right if I move on to my first game on my list? Please do, yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if this one's going to be on your list as well. I'm actually... Uh, I want to get to it first because I think there's the highest chance of crossover here. Uh, And it is Azul Queen's Garden, a a new game that was released at Essen. uh, And I think it's scheduled to come out more widely this year. Is it on your list, Brendan? This is not on my list. All right. Well, let me tell you a little bit about it. So Azul's Queen's Garden is the fourth game in the Azul series. Uh, it is designed, as, as with all the other ones, I believe, by Michael Kiesling. Um, and this one seems to be doing some interesting things with it. I, th- I think when talking about Azul, uh, I can sort of give a little bit of my thinking based on the ones I've played. I own and love the classic game. Obviously, that was the first one I was exposed to. I played Stained Glass of Sintra at a con and had a wonderful time with it, but didn't seek it out. And then I also previously owned and then traded away Summer Pavilion. Uh, and, and I, you know, I really liked it. But as of yet, none of the expansion ones have kind of like beat out that first one that is like this pure distilled experience. Um, and Queen's Garden seems to be moving further away from that distilled experience Uh upping the complexity and creating kind of the most complicated Azul game yet. Hexagons. And also, <laughs> is this a is this a Castillo? Obviously, so Michael Kramer is also one of the designers of El Grande, one of or excuse me, Michael Kiesling, one of our favorite games on the show. And it looks like Jake, there's a component on the table that's basically the Castillo from El Grande. Do you know? Is this a Castillo in this game? I don't know. I haven't read through the whole rule book. I did look at some uh, a little bit of a preview on YouTube um, by Man vs. Meeple, but I just kind of skimmed it. The Summer Pavilion also has a component that's a box that you're putting discarded tiles Tokens. into so they can okay. be like recycled for use later on. So I'd imagine uh, it's possibly that same thing. But what I think makes this one interesting is not just that it uses hexes instead of <laughs> uh, the traditional uh, rectangular pieces, whether it be squares or a diamond shapes, but and, and also not that this Azul game is quite clearly green, uh, which is a shocking development, I think. <laughs> But it's that it seems like there's a really interesting element to this where players will have more control than they have in the past over the tempo of the game. Mm. So in all the previous games, all the tiles are out on the board at once um, at the start of the phase that you're then drafting from using that uh, really cool uh, mechanic from Azul where you take all of the like tiles and the rest go into like a shared discard pile, which people can then take from later on. In this one, it's like only one of the uh, coasters, as we like to call it in Azul, starts out. And once that coaster has had tiles taken from it, another one comes out with some more tiles. So it's like a slow, uh, meted out kind of reveal of the tiles as opposed to all of what's... And I think that just like will completely and fundamentally change the decision space from what was a game that was really uh, an incredibly clear 
analytical tactical experience, right? Where you could theoretically plan out all potential moves from the first turn uh, to now having so much unknown information. Uh, I think it's just going to make this decision space feel really fuzzy um, to use our terminology from from decision space. So I just think that's going to be a really crazy change to shake up the formula. And I'm very excited uh, to try the fourth iteration of, of a series of games that I really love. Yeah, it looks awesome. I think a uh, mission well planned. It's definitely one that I would love to try. I've only played Azul myself, so um, I've missed all of the expansions. And the the presentation of this one looks especially beautiful. And I'm here for it. I think though, in we would be remiss. I I think it's funny that you brought up a uh, Michael Kiesling game. I think my list would not be complete without uh, adding to that. We we have to get the the duo represented and get a full Kimer, Kramer and Kiesling duo in games we'd like to try out. So I'm going to a solo uh, game design from Wolfgang Kramer, the co-designer of El Grande alongside Michael Kiesling. Um, and that game is a game that I've wanted to play for many years. It's a game that has existed since I was around four years old, and that game is Six Nipped. So Six Nipped is a, another card game. I promise my list is not five card games. It is a few card games, though. And to play, so Six Nipped is a game uh, with cards value 1 to 104. Uh, and at the start of the game, each player is dealt 10 cards. And the goal of the game is to have the fewest points by the end of the game. And that is how you are de- declared the winner of Six Nymphs. And it is also a si- simultaneous action game where there are five spaces. And at the same time, uh, basically, everyone's going to select a card from their hand to play and reveal them at the same time. And those spaces will each contain uh, a card with a value already, um, even at the start of the game. So, And your card that you reveal is going to be slotted into one of those five spaces in ascending order of cards played out of everyone at the table. So if Jake plays a 27 and I play a 13, my card's going to go down first. This gets more interesting because... The way that that happens in ascending order, basically when any of these rows gets to six cards, uh, that pool of cards is picked up by the player, the first five cards, and added to their hand. Ouch, you don't want those cards. Pain in the butt to have those added to your hand. And the sixth card is going to be the new first card in that row. Um, So Jake and I are looking at all of the rightmost values of these piles and maybe, you know, other people who are playing the game with us. Six Nymph actually plays ten, two to 10 players, um, which is pretty amazing to find a card game that can play up to 10 players. Um, we think maybe, okay, if I play this card, I think I'm going to play the 38, and that's going to go in the pile with the 35. Those values are only three away, so there's a good chance I'm going to slot in, and I know I'm going to have a location for my card to go that doesn't push a pile over. Say that's the fifth card, though, and Jake plays a 36. He gets to go first. It slides in. My card would then go into that pile on top of Jake's 36, and I get all the cards. So there's lots of hijinks going on of trying to sort of think through what cards are out on the table, what cards are in my hand, what could be played, and how do I dodge uh, dodge having to pick up all these stinky cards that I don't want. Yeah, I remember seeing a uh, shut up and sit down video on this one. I don't know if it was from one of their, you know, uh, series on card games that you should be Mm -hmm. playing or if it was a full on review, but uh, it definitely made me feel really excited to try out this game. I think it seems uh, without having played it like it really distills that 
element that exists in so many games of trying to just outthink your opponent um and just to have it distilled down into these super simple understandable choices um and 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 then also with the stakes being what what you know appear to be super high of messing it up um yeah i mean it just seems like a delightful game uh you know almost skull like in that way right a game that's so simple but like the stakes feel like impossibly high (laughs) yeah no definitely and i think that this is one that would play hilariously on the table too for that reason um and i also this is what i'm curious if maybe we want to consider covering on the show jake just because we really love these simultaneous choice games. They're so interesting from a decision-based perspective. Um, and I think they're also so much more difficult to talk about than something like a Euro-style management game where we can talk about evaluating uh, the sort of point potential on a given turn or sort of the efficiency puzzle. And I would love to sort of start jumping back into that conversation, right? Like we've talked about fighting games in the past with simultaneous choices. We're talking about race for the galaxy built around simultaneous choice. It just seems like it'd like add another element of like a nice, simple classic game that we could really get in and try to tear apart from the inside out. Yeah. I think that these simple games really push us to test out uh, the frameworks that we work on developing and talking about on the show to see if they actually have merit. And we can't really get away with just uh, spending an hour uh, talking about all the different components of the game. Like, you know, in something like Praga, Kaput Regni, where there's just like so many different things to talk about and explore, which is really fun in its own right. You know, and I had a great time on that episode. Um, that doesn't leave a lot of room to try and and think about like the core of the idea because it's just being pulled in so many different directions uh and when you talk about these games that's just one core idea uh yeah i think they're that those can be really fruitful let me go to my next game which is and i I guess i want to say the way i uh kind of get excited about stuff typically whether it's a board game or a movie or a book is is something that just kind of bubbles up until it like demands my attention like i don't typically i'm not somebody who watches a lot of trailers for movies and gets excited about what's coming out um i'm more so somebody that's oh wow you know everybody's talking about this movie i'm hearing all this buzz about it and now i'm just and it's out so i can just go now right i want that instant gratification and i feel the same about board games i don't do a lot of backing um I don't spend a lot of time on Kickstarter seeing like, you know, kind of what the new hotness is, is likely to be um, because I get a lot less gratification about pledging and waiting for two years than I do get when I see something, get excited about it. And I can like go get it and get it to like the table that night. So all of that to say is this next game that I want to talk about it is a game that was released in 2019. Um, and at the time, You know, I don't think there was that much buzz about it, but it's something that has just like kept bubbling up and bubbling up. And a lot of people I know and really respect in the hobby uh, have talked to me about it, told me you really have to get involved with this game. Uh, You have to try it. You're going to love it. And that game is the collectible card game Flesh and Blood designed by Jason Chung, Chris Gehrig and James White. So, Uh oh. (laughs) Uh oh. (laughs) okay tell me about flesh and blood jake and then i will talk to you about my my reaction 
So Flesh and Blood is a collectible card game, and uh, that in and of itself is going to turn off a lot of people um, because it does have that model of, uh, you know, random packs and building decks and, you know, net decking and, and all that stuff. But I think that the more I read about it, the more I think the designers of this game have been incredibly thoughtful um, so as to you know, push back against all these negative things about it. So for example, just as simple as uh, I learned like in a pack of cards in Flesh and Blood, the rare cards are, which historically are always the last card to get in a pack, uh, are placed safely in the middle. And the reason for that is because cards in the front and the back of a pack are the ones that are most likely to get damaged and shipping or when it's on the shelf uh, for how for however long. And I think... Uh, you know, while that doesn't tell you anything about the gameplay, it's like a really thoughtful touch. And uh, according to the people who I've read reviews of and people I've talked to, like those kind of thoughtful touches are found throughout this game. Perhaps none more so than the fact that people keep telling me all you really need to get is is a starter deck and you have a competitive, like a really competitive, fun deck right there, uh, which is a marked change from my days growing up playing magic the gathering uh with a where where a star deck was worth about as far as you could throw it in a competitive magic the gathering tournament um there are aspects about the gameplay that i think are really interesting specifically uh i like the idea that uh unlike mags gathering or keyforge even all cards in flesh and blood are multi-purpose cards so everything can be either played or discarded for a resource. So, you know, that right off the bat is something that is going to be, you know, blowing open the decision space of what you can do on a turn so much more so than, which I hesitate to say, but, you know, in the early turns of Magic the Gathering where you've got a land to play and that's probably it, you know, or maybe you could do one other thing. Right here, you know, you're starting out and you're you're always going to have some options. And then a lot of cards have, have many more uh choices than that i guess i understand you can play a card attack with a card use a card to bolster something else or discard it for a resource uh so you you start getting into just the variety of options i think it's really exciting um and you know i'm am somebody who always is hesitant to get involved with this type of a game but i've also really you know enjoyed my time playing magic in the past or keyforge more recently and i think it might be time for me to at least give this game a try. I feel like Flesh and Blood is made by trading card game players from the 90s who love trading card games, love Magic the Gathering, want to recapture everything special about those that early period of trading card games while also being like the game can be exactly, they can be new, it can be innovative, it can be informed by everything that's come since then in design. And it can be basically a souped up version of trading card games for people who love trading card games is the, is sort of what I get from flesh and blood, but like also has a really interesting decision space. And I have to admit, I haven't watched a lot on flesh and blood, but I routinely from like people in totally different spheres of my life, get text messages like this one, which I'm going to read to you. This, I, this is a text message. I literally received Jake on Monday, October 18th at 3:55 PM from one Alex Slotnick the co-host of Sanctimonious, Jake's other uh, Keyforge podcast, who said, I might be super into flesh and blood. Lol. I sold my Netrunner and have gone all in on picking up big pieces. 
And then I have another friend who has no relation to anything uh, with my normal game playing life who texted me a few days before that and said, so are you going to pick up FAB? Flesh and blood. Um, And I'm like, I can't even play this game. It's not online, which I think is really interesting that flesh and blood is specifically a, a physical game intended to be played physically. I think there's ways that you can play it on tabletop simulator. Um, but it's, they're really pushing, this is a physical product. Um, I think it's cool. It's something I really want to explore too, Jake. And I'm glad that you've wrapped the, the sort of the secret root of the podcast in some ways yeah. in, in collectible card games. I do think you're so right about the, the nineties aesthetic and it, like when you look at the art, it's like straight out of those, that period of magic where they were like trying to be like edgy, like even more so today, like torment block and onslaught block and and i i have to say like that in of itself does not appeal to me and perhaps that's the reason why i've been so hesitant to pick it up like i just hate the name of it for one yeah (laughs) you know that like flesh and blood that does nothing for me um but you know if the game plays as good as everyone says uh you can play limited with it you know maybe i'll I'll find the opportunity to to crack some packs and and see how it goes. Well, see you next year, Jake. When we, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, okay. Flesh and Blood sounds awesome. I'm curious to hear from all of you in our Discord if you've ever played Flesh and Blood and what your thoughts are on it as well. My next game. Let's go to this one, Jake. I think this will be an interesting follow up to the game we just t- discussed, and that is. Uh, I'm curious to hear if you've ever played it, but this is a 2011 game published by Queen Games. Uh, It is the follow-up game from one of the most successful designs of the last sort of 20 years, and that is Kingdom Builder by Donald X. Vaccarino, the designer of Dominion. Have you played Kingdom Builder, Jake? I've never played it, and I feel like of all... It, it's a game that people still talk about a lot in forums I've seen, and I feel like it is an incredibly divisive game, ranging mm. from people who feel like it's an absolute classic and continue to play it, you know, 10 years later, uh, and people who feel like it's just basically has no decision space at all. <laughs> so that really intrigues me, and that's sort of why I would love to get in there and unpack it. I will admit that Kingdom Builders is a game that sort of been just over in the box art of kingdom builder is this like uh individual on a on a horse in the foreground and in the background there's a kingdom and i feel like i've been in the foreground just hanging with a horse uh the horse being all the other board games i've played and then kingdom builder has been the castle just you know just sort of in the background there for the last half decade to decade that i've been playing games kind of saying i'm here if you want to if you want to trot over and play me you could uh i know you probably haven't and won't yet um, but I feel like I'm kind of, it's on board game arena. I'm kind of at the point where I'm like, I need to play this game. It keeps rearing its head. I'm curious. I'm intrigued. Um, for those of you who haven't played it, it's sort of an abstract tile placing, tile marking game, I guess. The board is made up of these modular uh, collections of hexagons of these different terrain types. And every turn you're having to place uh, tokens onto this board. I guess they're settlements onto three hexes of these different types. Uh, and you're sort of drawing a card and being told what you can, what you have to place in what type of train, I believe. Uh, and your placements have to be next to pieces you've already placed. Um, so to me, it seems like the kind of decision space that Jake and I have covered in the past, 
where it's a game where you're trying to stay as open as possible and as flexible as possible in terms of what decisions you're making and really push the decision space or pull the decision space in certain directions based on the decisions that you've made. Uh, But it's not a game I've played, and I don't know. It's one I might be interested in covering on the show if I play it and it goes well, and if I can get Jake to hop on the horse alongside me and trot off to the castle. Yeah, if you uh, if you'd like us to cover it on the show, let us know. Um, didn't there also? I think very recently, like a winter version of this game, it was re-implemented, re-implemented as Kingdom Builder, like winter or something like that, um, which I think was reviewed positively. Inter- interesting, the Winter Kingdom. Winter Kingdom. So yeah. I don't know if that's available, but I. I do recall that getting some pretty favorable reviews. And I think Kingdom Builder maybe falls into this group of games where I think one bias I have is now that I'm, you know, a full-on board game enthusiast and I, I kind of missed Kingdom Builder as I was like entering the hobby. Um, I think a lot of these games that are kind of like seen as like a great gateway or entry point to the hobby, like Kingdom Builder frequently is, is one that's, that I can look past now because I'm like, well, I've already done my gateway with, you know, Pandemic and Catan and so on and so forth. So I don't need to explore this one now. But having said that, a lot of times when I do check out these games, like Emotep is a great example. Uh, you know, I find games that I love way more than you know some of the more involved games we cover so i wonder if it's a game i'm just not giving a fair shake to because of how i kind of have it positioned in my like understanding of what it is totally and it has that baggage or like every stefan feld game that's right <laughs> i feel like could fall into that category if the person evaluating them was not jake friedman um okay let me do <laughs> m- my next game which is going to be rolling realms by stone meyer mm. games and i want to do a little just a really quick caveat that uh produced by stone meyer games jamie stegmeyer is the designer and a personal friend so keep that in mind mm. um rolling realms is a game that c- came out as a print and play uh and then it released a full as a full production game this year i think it's being shipped now to people who ordered it and is available online um but I was fortunate enough to get to try the game. Um, and I've only played it once to date, but it was a really fun little roll and write game. And what I think is really cool about it is it has like a modular setup. So each of the previous Stonemeyer games from Viticulture, Tapestry, Scythe all have a card in this game. Uh, and to play the game, you basically deal out three cards and then those together create the roll and write board. Then you're rolling dice and you're using dry erase markers to actually mark off squares on these individual cards and you use three of them at a time. Um, and so just like therein, uh, it creates a roll and write game, which has a ton of uh, variability because, you know, I don't know math, but if there's nine different ones you're using three at a time, you've got some preposterous, preposterously high number of possible setups, I'm sure. Um, so I think that's really cool. And I think that can be a place where roll and write games can potentially fall short. Uh, a lot of times, if you're just using the same board over and over, it might feel played out. So I think that uh, adding that variability into the roll and write 
genre is a really cool kind of innovation that I hadn't seen before. But the reason I'm including it on this list is because there was a recent announcement that I think is really interesting, which is that coming very soon, there's going to be a new pack of cards. So you can get it and add three new, uh, or you add, you know, a one new realm card to your game for each player color. So, So it's like six different cards, but all the same thing. And that new realm that's being brought in is Terra Mystica. That's awesome. So, so not a Stonemaier game, um, but I guess a game that Jamie Stegmaier has a, a lot of affinity and love to. Uh, so he asked them to basically design a realm, and then it was developed by Stonemaier Games, and now it's coming out, I think, uh, sometime in this year. So really quick turnaround. And I just like love that idea. And what it really makes me think of is Super Smash Brothers, almost, where you've got like all this iconic, Stonemeyer game stuff already in the game uh, and now it's got this it's, so what it essentially is right is like a platform uh, that can potentially bring in more and more classic board games and I haven't really heard of anything like that before in board games and the idea of having this game system that can will slowly have more content coming in from uh, games I know and love and you know little you know throwbacks in the mechanics that make it feel in some way like that game, I think is freaking awesome. Yeah. And I'm very excited about it. It's a, it really sort of plays with your mind in a way of like where this, where could this run to? Would you say Jake, having played Roland realms, you've played, you're a huge fan of clicks and I made you play welcome to, uh, you also enjoyed welcome to, but would you say this falls a little bit closer on the welcome to way of Roland rights or something closer to clicks and, I, I don't get the impression that Rolling Realms is sort of in this new wave weight of roll and write games like Hadrian's Wall or something super heavy like that, right? It's more in that yeah. classic, like, welcome to weight of game. Definitely a very light game. I would say, I think Welcome To is a good example. I think it's pr- it's tough to say because, like, because you have to learn the different things. There's like more different things probably happening in Rolling Realms than Welcome To, but like in actually playing the game, since you're only using three cards at a time, there's it's definitely less complex than like playing to playing Welcome To. If that makes sense, that makes complete sense, and you have me super intrigued because it feels like every combination of cards has the potential to really feel like a different game in some ways, even if you're truly learning new mechanics or ways that yeah. they play in that way. And so the game's structured where you'd play it, which, and this is something, you know, if you're a fan of this podcast, you know, it's not my favorite thing in the world, (laughs) but the game asks you to play it three times. So you get three realm cards, you score, you put those away, get three new realm cards, play the game again and score. I mean, you don't need to do that at all. That's not how I've played it. I've just played it as like getting three cards and that's like a 15 to 20 minute experience right there, which feels perfect to me. And I don't feel the need to play it three times over to get like a full game experience. Um, But so yeah, I I don't know where I'm going with that, but I would say that's kind of like a a small like caveat, but it's been really fun doing that. And definitely, so I played it one time. We did two different sets of cards. This is where I was going with it. And in one of the sets of cards, I think I like found and kind of an X point. Like I found a path through that and I ended up scoring like a crazy high score uh, and did way better than my wife, who is trying to play the game like more fairly 
Mm. Um, and so that, that was just really intriguing to me. Maybe those same cards will never come up again, but it definitely, like, there is clever things you can, like, find and unlock in any given set to do much better or worse. That's awesome. Rolling Room yeah. sounds super cool. Um, and it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Like you said, is there going to be, like, Catan added to Rolling Realms? That would, I, bet, I feel like, I don't know, you know, I can't speak for him, but I I think of, if a big IP like Catan or Pandemic approached Jamie, I think that he would probably be really excited to collaborate with something like that. Enchanted Plumes, maybe? <laughs> the Decision Space expansion? When? <laughs> uh, find out next time! <laughs> so let's go to my next game. And that is going to be a 2021 release, and that is Cascadia, a game by Randy Flynn, published by AEG. And I'm actually, so this is another sort of uh, tile-laying game where you're marking sort of different hexes that you're adding to your board. You have hexes that represent different terrain types, and then tokens that represent different animals of Cascadia. So you have bears and foxes and hawks and elk and different types of terrain. Uh, and it's a drafting game. So each turn you're presented with this different pairing of a terrain type that you can add to your board and an animal type that you can add to your board. And those are it's a random pairing of terrain and animal. And then overarching, you're going to get points, I believe, for having the most of a terrain type. And then there's also goal cards that are randomly assigned that are sort of say like hawks want to be the furthest away from each other or foxes want to be surrounded by bears sort of things like these that are randomly created and i'm really intrigued by this really simple but straightforward mechanic of pairing a terrain type to an animal type and on your turn you draft them and add them to your board as you build out your own little personal cascadia um, to me, it seems like I specifically stuck this in after Kingdom Builder, because I'm curious how these two games might juxtapose in the way that they're sort of doing something slightly similar with adding tokens to hexagons and doing something totally differently, where Cascadia is a personal play space game and Kingdom Builder is a shared play space game. Obviously, there's are not games that I've played yet, but Cascadia just really intrigued me. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. It's beautiful Beth Sobel art, uh, and it's a game that's pretty hot right now and had me intrigued. So alongside Scout, I also purchased this game, and it's it's on the way to my home for more gaming goodness. That's awesome. You've got a steady stream of games coming in. Recently, you picked up Taj Mahal. Is that right? And also Shot and Totten. That is right. It's a. I think it's <laughs> aspirational. We can play physical board games again because our baby, who is now three months, is starting to take better naps. So I think I'm like, bring the games on. My That's life amazing. is back to game playing. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, Cascadia seems super neat. Um, when I see... Yeah, it's something that's, you know, it's been up in the hotness on BGG. I haven't actually uh, seen any of the podcasts that I listen to regularly cover it yet, which is traditionally how I find out about games and start to get excited about them. Um, but I, I imagine that there'll be some higher profile reviews coming soon. So I think I'll have to like wait for that. Uh, I have to say, I don't know why, but the nature theme that seems to be like, just everywhere it's like the new hot trend in board gaming uh it doesn't do a whole lot for me i'm not i'm not sure why i don't want to zen out i want to like i want to (laughs) fight well i don't know it's i i hear what you're saying i feel like it you do like high conflict games i wonder if how much the 
potential for hate drafting would come through in this game in a way that it would really work for you. I will admit that in decision space, if we have any reputation uh, beyond, oh, you guys are the nerds who talk about decisions in games, our second reputation might be that we're the cult of the fully cooked, which is to say, like, neither of us get that excited about Kickstarter. So I saw Cascadia on Kickstarter. I was like, huh, this art is beautiful. The game looks cool, but I don't want to back it because I'm not into backing games. And then the second it hit retail, I was like, yep, okay, I'm on it. I want to play this game. I, I, I hear what you're saying about the nature theme too. I feel like partially it gets a bump for me because those themes play really well in the home, meaning they appeal greatly to my general audience here, my wife and other people around. And I don't know, Jake, there's pretty elk and pretty That's fine. bears That's great. and stuff. Look, all I'm saying is like, I want something that's in between on one end Cascadia and flesh and blood on the other. And I feel sure. like that's a pretty wide range. So I'm just looking for in between <laughs> those two things. I don't think that's a lot to ask for. So like a, a deer mating season dueling game. I don't know. I don't know. I don't want that either. All right. Let me do. Can, is it okay if I do my next game now? Please save us. Okay. Um, so I'm going to do an expansion. <laughs> for a game that we have covered on this podcast before do you know what it is brendan no what is it it is the leaders expansion for arnak oh nice okay yeah and part of the reason i wanted to bring this up is because i think of all of the games that we've covered on this show arnak has had maybe the longest shelf life after where you know we we play the heck out of a game before we discuss it on the show uh, or at least we try to and then sometimes it's like okay we've done that and now we will we're on to the next thing mm-hmm. uh, but arnak is a game that you know we kept playing it like regularly like all the time you know weeks and months after and i think it's cooled off a little bit uh, in our discord or it has for me um but it's it's a game that continued to grow on me after we did the review uh, and I'm really excited to try out the X Heroes expansion um, when that comes out. I know it was released at Essen. I, I expect that means it's you know pretty much imminent for a retail release here, or at least I hope so. Um, and I think that if there is, uh, I guess, uh, one criticism with Arnak, which I think is valid, is that it can feel somewhat samey from play to play. Uh, you you can do different things with your deck, but once you really become familiarized with uh, the cards and especially the uh, items that you get with gold, which are do much more to kind of shape your play because you're typically getting those early. Uh, I, I definitely can understand people that feel like, okay, I've had that experience. I've played uh, both different temple tracks a couple times uh, and it was fun, but now there's not that much left to explore if I don't want to just like try to master the incremental advantages that can be had in the game um and i think that heroes is gonna bring some like welcomed variability to the game uh not only does it have different heroes which i think if i understand give you uh unique player powers um but also they give you a unique starting deck uh so that will really shape uh the way different games play out probably depending on the hero you have alongside that there are uh, some additional new temple tracks. Um, And I just feel like that for me is the type of expansion that I really get into things that aren't trying to do 
too much to fundamentally change the game, but it's just giving you more of what you already like about the game. Um, so unique player powers to try out, individual starting decks to try out, uh, different temple tracks to explore. Uh, I say hell yeah to all that, and I really look forward to playing it. I'm super intrigued by the idea of unique player powers in Arnak, because in some ways the pitch of Arnak to me is like deck building plus worker placement, plus it's the most streamlined game you've ever played. Like the math is just so tight. It's so clean. Somehow it just, it it all stacks up to create this really uh, streamlined experience. And I think the premise of adding unique player powers to that game is incredibly exciting to me. The fact that from the start, my deck isn't just, what is it, three, two compasses, two coins and two fear cards or three, three and two, whatever it is, um, is very exciting that we, because another, I think, criticism that can be there of Arnak is that you only get to play five rounds of the game, really, which can feel so fast. So if I get to start with a little bit more identity in the beginning, where I end up, might feel even more different than everyone else, which could be really great. Like maybe what that game needed was just a little bit more variation. Though I agree, Jake, Arnak is a game that had an incredible shelf life. So I think in some ways, the two of us who spend a lot of our time uh, playing 20, 30, 40, 50 games of a game we're going to cover on the show uh, as we lead up to it and don't delve into the games we really enjoy that we've covered quite as much as we might if we weren't doing that an excuse to return to Arnak is is very exciting for me. And I, yeah, I'll be really curious to see how that plays. And I, I hope it comes to Board Game Arena. Yeah, I feel the same way. Awesome. Okay, my next game, Taj Mahal by Reiner Knizia. Uh-oh. Jake brought it up. I spoiled I'm, it. <laughs> I'm bringing it to the, to the mission planning. So this is a game that came out all the way back in the yesteryears of 2000. Uh, the, the new millennium had dawned. And Reiner Knizia had a game for the world based on an incredible, incredible palace in India. Uh, Taj Mahal is really interesting. So I've read the rules. I've acquired a copy off of eBay for, I think, a really spicy price of $14 for a sealed copy of Fantasy Flight Games Taj Mahal. I'm not saying that made me even more excited about it, but it did feel good to get that bargain. Um, This game is... It, it's sort of in that school of games alongside Raw, Through the Desert, Samurai, games that sort of get mentioned as being these really classic Reiner Knizia games. But I would say that this is probably at the lower end of what people are sort of saying when they're talking about those games, right? People bring up Through the Desert and Modern Art and Raw much more frequently than they bring up Taj Mahal. Um, and I'm really intrigued to jump into Taj Mahal, though, because it, it's sort of a unique game in that it's a card-driven network building game i don't know if you heard there's another one of those that came out in 2004 called ticket to ride the game kind of popular uh but this one came out four years before that and you're essentially on your turn you're collecting cards in these different colors um that on a turn you could play two one card of a color or one card in a white card or two cards of the same color and you can continue to bid essentially for these different powers but you can only play in one color of these cards that you're collecting. It's a game played over 12 rounds. And over the course of the game, you're adding pieces to the board as you're expanding out your network of palaces yourself throughout this board of India. And you're going to get more points the more regions your network of palaces connects into. And at the same time, you're playing this 
set collection game with different goods where the first time you get a good it's worth one point the second time you get a good it's worth one point plus one point for every good you already have um and you essentially it's an auction game with these cards that when you leave if you're winning an auction uh for a given bonus on the cards you're playing you get that bonus so it's a timing game of sort of saying how much do i want to add to this pot before i leave plays two to five players and i'm just really intrigued uh i'm a huge fan of reiner knizia and this is one that i think reiner knizia fans tend to mention whereas the general zeitgeist don't love so i'm curious to see if it hits home for me or if it's a little bit of a miss yeah it'll be interesting to see if it's uh if the, it's really a game that's for the Knizia fans or if it's a game that Knizia fans want to feel a little bit hipster about their love sure, for. Sure, <laughs> sure, sure. Know? Yeah. There, there's such a funny thing in board games where people's identity is so shaped around like the, their number one game, their top games, right? Especially people who are in the uh, board game media space. Uh, like you, you might know a podcaster by their top game, or or their top game is a way that they're really able to express themselves and explain, you know, kind of who they are through the medium of board game. So I'm always like, I just think it's really interesting when you hear people talk up a game. Yes, they're doing it because they love the game, but all there's a lot under the surface that might come into like why that game rises to the top for them, or like why. I like to say that Bruges is my number one Feld game instead of boring Castles of Burgundy that everybody else loves and, and thinks is the best. Uh, you know, it's it's really hard to just purely separate yourself from your preferences and then, like, why is it your preference? Totally. This, like, I, through my my excellent taste and my long-term investment in the board game community, I have found the hidden gem of X, and all of you have overlooked it, even though this is a game that I'm sure you know. And it's excellent for these reasons. I feel like that's popular in so many hobbies too, right? Like in music, like you, these people have this affinity for this album that's like, no, this this first album of St. Vincent's, Marry Me, is actually the best album for this reason. And all you posers never listen to it. Or Music definitely is the hobby that like... <laughs> Isn't that where like hipster was like coined? I basically, think out of, or like, coffee roasting. Yeah, so I think there's there is a flavor of that certainly uh, in all hobbies, and and it just comes out of probably being a huge enthusiast for something and diving deeper into something than other people have. Hearing you talk about Taj Mahal reminds me of a recent experience I had with Notre Dame by mm. Stefan Feld, my favorite designer, and it, it's similarly a game that a lot of people are like. This is one of his really good ones, but very few people would say it's his best. And I, I got a really good deal on it at Miniature Market. I played it a couple times uh, with a few different groups. And I have to say, it's a good one, but definitely not one of his best, at least for me. Uh, so, you know, it, I don't I don't want to say like underwhelming. It's still a good game, still a game I'd, I'd like to play again. But I, I didn't, I wasn't like wow like how have i never played this game before totally not to make you less excited about taj mahal <laughs> no i do wonder if there's the potential for that to happen with taj mahal. it felt you know it felt like a little bit dated i think notre dame did that's one thing that i've been acutely aware of with sort of thinking back to the fact that it is a game from 2000 like will it feel dated is this game going to be too simple reiner knizia designer who iterates so often 
he hasn't has he iterated on this idea directly since then should i just have bought that game yeah, these are all very good questions. I, I'll be really intrigued to see if, if that comes into play. I think you also spent approximately exactly the same price. There's no such thing as approximately exactly. If you're going to come in the Discord and correct me, feel free to, but I know it's just a turn of phrase. Uh, $14 on that game as well. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, yeah, I think it was exactly. like 15 bucks or something. Yeah, so funny. I don't know, miniature market just somehow it was like, we've got 400 Notre Dames in the warehouse. We have to do something about this. <laughs> sell, sell, sell. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let me go on to my last game and our last game, I think, collectively for this episode. Um, and this one I've talked about before on this show as being a game I'm excited about. There is a through thread to our discussion we've just been having, and that game is Hamburg, the re-implementation of Bruges, which should be out imminently to Kickstarter backers, but who knows? Uh, it's it's kind of being a little bit mired in this Queen's Game Kickstarter where they're trying to produce a city's so collection of Steffenfeld games, both new designs and re-implementations. Uh, I, I think Marrakesh is another one that maybe is going to be a brand new game. Amsterdam isn't one that is a re-implementation of Macau, which would be probably really cool too. But the one I am particularly interested in is Hamburg. The re-implementation of Bruges, my number one game. I think that even though Bruges is my number one game, there are things about it that could be updated to be made better. It seems to be those are some of the things that are being changed in this new edition of the game. So I'm just thrilled uh, to try it out if I'm ever given the chance. Uh, as I mentioned on this show, I am not a Kickstarter backer. So I'm sort of in this position where it's like, yeah, I would love to play it if given the chance. But I don't know that it's going to be coming to retail, so maybe I'll have to get it on the secondary market or play a friend's copy. I'm certainly not going to pay $600 for all four games or whatever madness it is uh, in Kickstarter prices. I think also there have been people who got in on the original Kickstarter are kind of unhappy with lack of updates. It's hard to fault a publisher right now knowing that uh, supply chains all over the world are in a constant state of flux and uh just kind of so it's sort of i think the first kickstarter is sort of mired in that but nevertheless you know it is a game that is designed and developed and coming out relatively soon um so yeah when your number one game gets re-implemented yeah you gotta check it out question for you jake if this comes so it's been like six months since this comes out this is a hypothetical Jake, you're sitting at your house. You're like, oh, I really want a chance to play Bruges slash Hamburg. You go online, you check out the BGG secondary market. You see that the cost of Hamburg is $90. And then you think to yourself, oh, what if I check eBay? You go to eBay, you type in Steffenfeld Bruges, and it pops up that you could find that game for $90. You're not going to get Rivers on the Zwin. You're not going to get the expansion that you love. But... These two boxes are juxtaposed. Which direction are you going to run? That's an easy choice. And I would definitely pick Hamburg because the expansion components in River on the Zwin, I think, are just absolutely mandatory. I would never choose to play Bruges without them. Uh, So those are just kind of being added as core to the game, which, like, 
it feels like they always must have been in some way. Uh, so it's just one of those weird things like playing without it. It's like the ones, twos, fives and sixes all do something, but the threes and fours don't. <laughs> so like, let's just play with the module that like makes the threes and fours do something. Cause without it, it just feels really strange and absent. Um, so yeah, I would definitely pick Hamburg. If, if I could get Hamburg or Bruges with all expansions for the same price, I might go the Bruges route just yeah. because that kind of has the history of the legacy. It's a game I, I already know I love. And, and there's certainly a world in which Hamburg comes out and the adjustments uh, don't don't offer the improvement I think they might uh, and, or even kind of clutter up or not clutter, but just some of the game, the magic that I found in the initial game is is not there. That's certainly in the realm of possibilities. But there's something really charming about Bruges' original Z-Man art too. It's just so much of the era that it's from. I think the the Queen Games Hamburg updated art is like perfectly nice. Uh, I would sit down. You would set up the box in your window when I was coming over for game night. Park my car, and I'd walk up and be smile on my face, excited to see Hamburg in the window. I don't think does anyone put a game in their window to attract people to their game night. I don't think so. But <laughs> idea for someone to steal. I'm doing that now is a great idea. <laughs> With a light shining down on it, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and you could set up multiple games, and then when people come for three weeks in a row, you scare them, and you put out like Gloomhaven, Terraforming Mars. <laughs> El Grande, you just stack them up and you put like the games you know people want to play, like El Grande towards the end of the line, which represents like, the end of the night. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm following you. I like the idea of one game in the window. Let's start with that and then we'll see. We don't have to, you know. It was the Halloween twist because it's a horror. Okay, let's move oh, yeah. on, move on, move on. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, that's my final game. It, you know, it's something I'm watching the campaign with interest. I hope it's a game I'll get the opportunity to play uh, sooner or later, um, just because I'm really curious about it. But yeah, it remains to be seen physically. <laughs> awesome. Well, if you all enjoyed this mission planning episode of Decision Space, the podcast about decisions and games, Jake and I would love to hear from you in our Discord or on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at Decision Spa is our handle there. Uh, we'd love to hear from you there. We're also on Board Game Geek. You can search for our blog. Uh, it's just called Decision Space. And leave us a comment with your thoughts on the episode, on any of the games that we played. If you have other recommendations of new games that you think that we'd enjoy or games that have recently gone digital, whether it's to an app or to Board Game Arena or to Yukata where we love playing games, let us know. We're always looking for new games to cover on the show. And you can find a link to our Discord community in the show notes as well. For all of our pre-planners, do not forget, I've bungled saying pre-planners like literally like three times on this episode. And it's just in the back of my mind, pissing me so much. Pissing me off so much. But for our pre-planners, ding, got it. Remember that next week we're going to be covering Race for the Galaxy uh, from a long time ago in a board game space far, far away by Tom Lehman, and then the week after that we'll be covering Seven Wonders Duel by none other than Antoine Bauza and Bruno Cathala uh, reigning second most games covered on the podcast next to Seffenfeld, and I think they'll be tied once we do that. Um, Jake, any closing thoughts for the episode? Yeah, I think this was an interesting episode. It's definitely one that I would love to hear feedback on. One thing we don't do on this show is news, which is something that a lot of uh, board game podcasts do do what is this traditional 
Are we the traditional podcast now? The reason I feel like we don't need to do it is because there are so many other venues that are already doing a great job covering that. But maybe this is a way that we can kind of just every once in a while inject some things we're excited about, uh, games that are on our mind outside of our traditional format. Um, Or maybe it doesn't work for you, but either way, let us know. Likewise. See you in our Race for the Galaxy episode next week, y'all. And hopefully talk to you in our Discord community or elsewhere before then. Uh, Signing off. Bye, y'all.